I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Now, it's a real pleasure, Ian, to speak with you about your latest extraordinary volume, The Gold Machine. Now, this is something that grows out, of course, of a long-standing personal family history for you, but also a cultural intervention into many of your earlier works. Now, before we talk about the book itself, I have been crunching the stats with your involvement with the LRB and some incredible figures have emerged. I mean, you, of course, will be fully aware of this, but our wonderful audience might not be that um, you've published 45 articles with the LRB and your first was in 1988. So you are really uh, going all the way back with the uh, with the journal. There's only been four years in which you haven't published anything. And those were particularly busy years for you with writing major volumes. But of course, that means that you have also made up for those with many, many articles in certain years. You've had three extremely striking dedicated covers given over to yourself. And you were, of course, crucially part of the 40th anniversary issue with early writing from this very publication, The Gold Machine, in 2019. So all sorts of LRB connections for you. Now, before we go on to how this first appeared in the LRB, way, way back, in fact, with Angela Carter. I mean, the idea of the space of, of the London Review books as a long form arena for investigation has clearly been very important to you. You've obviously road tested work that's gone into book form later. You've had standalone pieces. You've used reviews and, uh, and publication opportunities by other writers to investigate and, and to kind of probe deep in, into your own topography. How do you think about that idea of the long form journal space now, particularly as as the idea of reading at length almost anywhere in the culture seems threatened. The space of the LRB is obviously a very important one for you, but does it, has it meant something particular to you in relation to being anchored to London as a publication? Yeah, the, the connection with the LRB totally changed my life. I mean, when I started out writing, it was a subversive, subterranean activity based around time off from poking about gardens and looking at Hawksmoor churches. And there was no, there was no way, there was no flow out into the world at large. We, we were a nice peer group movement. Most of the readers were also writers. Most of them were associated with independent bookshops. Then at that time it would be compendium in Camden town. So you, you knew, you knew your audience, you knew it was a, it was a closed world practicing open form poetry by paradox. I, I wrote a 
strange kind of book that followed up from the early poetry and prose poetry books I'd done called Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings. And bizarrely, a local figure, Patrick Wright, who's a great cultural historian, um, knocked on my door and, and invited me around for a, a drink in the Prince George. And we had a long conversation and he decided he was going to write about this book, which struck me as bizarre. It's never happened to me up to that point. And it was a, a cover story in the LRB. I mean, a, a remarkable, you know, really remarkable. I don't think I've been reviewed ever in the LRB since um, way, way back somewhere in the early 90s with the novel Radon Daughters. But this, this was so special and it was a wonderfully intelligent response that, that related me being a sort of a, a laureate of the welfare state creeping about the margins of things in a way that you know, nobody had ever done anything like that. And then the bonus was when I wrote Down River, the follow-up book, uh, Angela Carter wrote a, a marvelous piece, you know, in the LRB, which was a complete standalone definition of the difference of living on the south bank and the north bank of the river, and how alien she felt when she entered Whitechapel. So that led to a meeting with uh, Angela Carter, uh, Susanna Clapp, John Lanchester. We, we had lunch in an Italian restaurant in Russell Square, and I thought, you know, this. This was a different kind of literary life that I couldn't have imagined. It was like expecting T.S. Eliot to, to drop round the corner from Russell Square and join us. Ah, of course, Angela Carter died shortly afterwards. I, you know, got to know her a little and visit her, um, and that that was a real blow. But they had sort of led me into fiction, and the LRB giving space for full-length essays led me into writing a kind of prose that defined mostly what I've done ever since. So essentially, the chance to write there and have this long form essay was utterly important to me and has fed into most of the books I've done since then, apart from the secret private independent books that I like to bring out through small poetry presses and have continued to do throughout. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for that, for that, um, you know, kind of exploration and explanation of your relationship uh, with the LRB. It's very important, of course, that you mention Angela Carter. We'll come on to her in a minute, directly related um, to the gold machine. As you said, Patrick Wright's um, piece, Spitalfield's Magic, was the cover line uh, for that incredible full full page image of Radinsky's room that um, led his piece, I think, around Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings in 1987. You started writing in 88. And as you say, in 1991, Angela Carter reviewed Down River. Now I'm going to hold up, if I may, the front papers inside the front cover of Down River. I hope people can just get a sense of those, of the number of images there, which are absolutely crucial to our ongoing conversation now, because she wrote in her review, Ian Sinclair, in the profane spirit of surrealism, has chosen to decorate the end papers of his new work of fiction with a dozen and another postcards. They show scenes such as that of six men heavily veiled, veils held down by brimmed hats, posed with long barreled rifles, and two men in grass skirts with feathers in their hair, intent on a game of billiards. Now, Ian, in many ways, of course, Angela Carter has appeared in a number of your books, but in many ways, this 30 years on, down river, down river from uh, central London, of course, is tilted central to uh, kind of one of one of the points of departure. For the gold machine. Please, if you could, perhaps using Down River and Angela Carter's comments as a prompt, take us on the beginnings of the journey towards the gold machine. The beginnings of the journey towards gold machine would be 
childhood would be the sense that there was there was a book in the family that this germ I had for carrying out strange expeditions and writing and poking about actually did come from some source and that source was a, a great grandfather called Arthur who had uh, left his highland home as a young man and shipped out from Tilbury four and a half month voyage to Ceylon I knew that story and I knew the book, I smelt the book, I looked at the pictures in the book. The pictures in the book, photographs he'd taken of Ashenika people, were exactly like the postcards that you've shown at the beginning of Down River. The ones in Down River I just found in a, on a stall, a junk stall. It was rather a Sebaldian incident of finding these 12 incredible surreal postcards, which were obviously a kind of Conradian story of colonialism that you could shift into any order and make make a kind of game or a narrative out of them. And I knew that the Down River book had to start with that. But Arthur himself had, had appeared in books of poetry and so on right from the beginning of my career. I come back to the Yeats quote that I used in Lad Heat, that the living can assist the imagination of the dead. And from the start, I think I was in part ventriloquized by this man. And it's been very amusing to me now in the in the very few reviews that have occurred of, of uh, Gold Machine, there's a sense of Arthur being resurrected and me disappearing. So that when we did, we did a podcast for the TLS and there was a long, long, several page description of Arthur and there was no time left to talk about the book. And I think this is this is kind of rather wonderful <laughs> that he's, he's merged as a rounded character as I fade away. But his example, was something I was drawn to. I always wanted to make this particular journey, which ended, it very much came to a full stop at the edge of these rapids where he, the indigenous people he's with leave him, the duplicitous priests who guided him steal all their drink and disappear into the jungle. And he's surrounded by an armed band sitting through the night, thinking he's going to die. There's no further to go. What happens after that? And I wanted to, I thought it was my job to get to that point and see what happened after that. So that was the provocation for writing the book. But much more importantly, Fawn, uh, my daughter, when, when she was 18, for, for no evident reason, decided she had to go to Peru before she went to university. And she went on her own, you know, to, to join a group in Peru. And I gave her the, the book to read at that point. And she undertook a whole level of research way beyond me in which she uncovered the motivations for what my great-grandfather's journey had been. He'd been sent out by the Peruvian Corporation of London, a sort of banking authority in Leadenhall Street, to see if land could be turned to use that had been given them by the Peruvian government, who'd reneged on debts, and they'd given away the railways, they'd given away the mines, a huge tranche of land, like you know the whole of France and Spain, just see if you can do anything with that. But no outsiders had ever been there. And so he goes and he, he makes a report. He's, he's in love with the landscape as a kind of Eden, but he sees that you can grow coffee. And the net result of that is the foundation of these coffee colonies. And so essentially he was part of a, an enclosing colonialist narrative, like something that Casement was reporting on or Conrad. So I had that darkness, but that was all uncovered by my daughter. And I had to fuse that with my own sense of it as a sort of Conan Doyle, Professor Challenger adventure, and put the two things together and make a journey, sort of late on in life as he did, and see what came of it. Well, thank you very much.
very much indeed fortunate, of course, given what happened in early 2020, to be able to go to Peru yourself in 2019. That was part of the article, the diary that appeared in the LRB in October of, of 2019. Now, this location in Peru, of course, brought together, you know, a deep sense of the of the family history and the arrival, you know, at the river and with the community and the legacy of colonialism in a very direct way. But also, of course, as you said, has brought together a number of your own abiding cultural influences, both locationally, but also more atmospherically and associatively. And before we get on to the, the kind of colonial story, I just wonder if you could map for us a little bit your your sense of those those cultural tributaries, shall we say, arriving at that point, because they have appeared, of course, in a number of other publications and books of yours, but they find in a way their sort of full realisation, shall we say, their kind of reason to be in, in this publication, in, in, in this volume, it seems. Well, I think, you know, I think that the defining, there are several defining moments. There are these nexuses where things really important happen and your whole consciousness takes a leap forward. One of them for me was around 1967 when I'd, I'd been, uh, I had lived in London in 1962 as a film student and I'd been in Dublin at university in the subsequent years and I was back in, in London ducking and diving and picking around the edges of the film world and doing a bit of teaching and this chance arrived to attend the Dialectics of Liberation at the Roundhouse and to listen to these luminaries people like Gregory Bates and Oakley Carmichael, R.D. Lang and so on, pontificating for a, very intensely for a couple of weeks and make a film with Allen Ginsberg. So I had a few days, a number of days, talking all day with Ginsberg. And this, this really was very important, particularly one day when we sat on top of Primrose Hill and looked across at London and saw it as a, as a totally organic entity, as if the whole thing there was a, was a series of filaments and patterns and paths running off in all directions. Ginsberg himself was reading from William Blake, talking to Harry Fainlight, and he was obsessed by the look of the post office tower. I think it was a sort of phallic imagery of the post office tower, combined with the paranoia of electronic communication going out across the world. Because of late, he'd been making these journeys in his camper van across America, talking about the war state of America, Vietnam, and um, making tape recordings and transcribing and noticing signs outside windows. And he didn't realize, I think, that the post office tower was actually where Rambo and Verlaine had lived at the base of that. That was one of their London addresses. But curiously enough, he broke away from our filming. He didn't say where he was going. And he went to Flantoni Abbey in, in Wales, in the borderland where Tom Mashler, the publisher of Cape, had a cottage and they took LSD and went to the top of the hill above Flantoni Abbey and had a, a pantheist, utopian, Edenic, Blake vision of these Lammy hillsides and the rising fog and all of that. And this was exactly my home ground. So ironically, Ginsberg was escaping <laughs> to go back where I'd come from, which became the subject of a book, Landor's Tower, which I wrote years later. The connection to the gold machine is that uh, Ginsburg's South American journals were, were published not too long before, just at the time I was writing. And I was astonished to see that seven years before I met him, he was traveling through the same spaces in Peru as I had done. He was on the same railway, but he was in the footsteps of William Burroughs looking for ayahuasca. He was looking for sort of the 
the answer to the cosmic secret. And at that time, it, well, there was no great ayahuasca tourism. He was following Burroughs, who who had um, met an associate from Harvard University, who had actually been researching these substances for some time and uh, had written endlessly about it. And the two came together, and Burroughs made the the telling journey that became the Yahe letters between the, the two of them. So the one strand was that Ginsburg encounter from 1967, when everything seemed to be happening very fast, everything seemed to be opening up. Gregory Bateson was talking about the melting of the polar ice caps. They were all very engaged with that. Nobody else took much notice for a very long time. Lang was doing his voyages through madness. So, all of, so that's one strand going into, into Gold Machine. The other strand is, is a long-time obsession with the figure of Conrad, who comes back time and again, and who, curiously enough, was living very close to Tilbury, where my grandfather sailed from. He was at Stanford La Hope. He was out on the river at Gravesend, which is where Heart of Darkness begins. Conrad himself met Roger Casement while he was in the Congo. Casement does his uh, report on the atrocious conditions in, in the Belgian Congo, slavery there and subsequently goes to South America and does the same thing with the rubber plantations. So those, those figures don't die, they're part of my narrative, they're there all the time. There's a, there's, a, there's a present tense interwoven between all of these stories. And the storytelling leads us to the point where we finally, we go and to stay in an Ashenica community on the river Perene, and the, the shamanic consciousness begins to override this other theories of documented events that I've been talking about. And I think a lot of my, my ways of writing were, in any case, shamanic. I was bringing a, a kind of Celtic shamanism to my reading of London. Well, thank you very much indeed for that very full response. And in a way, that, that last line is, is absolutely a perfect point to lead into my next question, because casual readers looking at the, the ostensible subject matter of this book might think that you have completely left your, your kind of normal approach to things and, and very much transformed your location and perhaps even your way of writing. But I'm really intrigued by what you just said, because actually in other conversations we've had, you've revealed that the way of thinking of the Ashanika people, particularly in relation to a much more dynamic conjunction of time and place, really has in a way, perhaps without identifying it as such until more recently, informed entirely following on from Ginsburg and your own investigations, much more how you see our relationship with place, with time, with history, with the living and the dead and their relationship. Could you expand on that a little? Because it seems that this is very much of a piece, arguably a culmination of all the work to date. Yeah, I think I think the key line in the in the whole book comes up quite early, which is the jungle begins in London. You know, that consciousness of plurality and of the river, which I somehow had percolated down from my great-grandfather, and the, particularly the photograph of him. It's like one of the photographs of the postcards at Down River. There's a photograph of him on a balsa raft. He's sitting there with a gun across his lap and, and two indigenous people with him, and he's on this river. And that river becomes the Thames, obviously, for me, and it becomes all rivers that, that I understand the, the sense of time that they have, which is that time is a plural dimension and all of these strands flow and shift with the tides, come and go, 
and lead you out into world ocean or lead you back into the heartland of the imagination, the kind of Celtic West. And if you wanted to locate an ancestor, which a lot of my writing was about, making terms with ancestors, making terms with predecessors as writers, and feeling them still there with their work unfinished, then you go to a location that they would make a journey through the low jungle. They would make a journey along the salt trails, but they would have a place, a rock, a waterfall that was associated with the person you wanted to be in contact with. That would answer your oracular question. And it's like a kind of the way that the Greeks or the Romans would think of oracles, that could be applied to this kind of consciousness as well. Uh, and one of the obsessions with the guides that we had was to get to various waterfalls. Our obsession was to get to a cave that belonged to Juan Santos Atualpa, who was a, a revolutionary highland figure who rose up against the Spaniards and very successfully against the colonists and had been mythologized by the Indian people and had a cave or shrine that we felt we wanted to get to because Arthur had been taken there by his guides, the priests, and left to sleep on a pile of bones. And our attempts to get there were, were constant confusions and mystifications and journeys. And, and we realized in the end that the journey was the thing, that the journey gives you time to contemplate and understand. And the fact that we, when we made the journey through the jungle for the first time, we were you know, given machetes, we're hacking our way through to get to this cave, suddenly the guide disappears and we're left completely alone in the, in the presence of the animate jungle. And it's a beautiful, transcendent moment. You know, the sun is pouring through. We, we can hear the waterfall at a distance, but we can't go anywhere. We can't move. We're, on a, we're trapped on a vertical path. And suddenly we're there. You know, there is a there and we're in it. And realize that that is the quest, that the, the cave is negligi it's negligible in comparison to this. The thing is just to be there, to do it, to open yourself entirely to the sounds and smells and tastes of where we were. And having undergone that experience, we are led out of the out of the jungle and get back on a road, a muddy track, and eventually deposited up against a gigantic pyramid, which was a pyramid to Fernando Stahl, who was a, Advent, a Seventh-day Adventist missionary. But it was also a jump in time back to the pyramid in St. Anne's Church in Limehouse, the Hawksmoor Pyramid. Suddenly there was a fusion, as if these people who knew nothing whatsoever about me and couldn't possibly have read anything I'd ever written, had the notion that what I, they needed to take me to was not this cave, which was their myth, but to the pyramid, which was my myth, and which linked everything back to the beginning in Ludheat. So it was an absolute you know, moment of uh, <laughs> wonderful recognition, which they they had done. And, and uh, to understand that way of thinking was, I guess, what I've always been trying to do. Well, it's tremendous. And obviously, for those of us who know your writing over the years, I mean, that is a wonderful uh, e example of this incredibly intuitive serendipity, which is a much more creative exchange, of course, between London and Peru than the Peruvian Corporation of London's one-way tra traffic of extractive resourcing. So I wonder now if we could just perhaps hear a little bit from the book, Ian, if it's a, a good time for you to, yeah. to give us a short reading. I'll just read a, a short piece that, that comes near the end. What's happened was I, I always thought when I was 
planning out the book ahead that it would finish when we got to the rapids. Either I would successfully get through them and discover this whirlpool of dead ancestors that was on the far side, where the living <coughs> and the dead could intermingle with the presence of the remaining shining path and the narco traffickers and everything would be there. It was dangerous, but that's what I would have to do or I would fail. And um, indeed, we, we had great difficulty in getting onto the river at all. I found a guy with a dugout canoe and he took me into the initial rapids and then there was a kind of decision to take and we, we beached and we didn't go through. We stopped at the same point as my great grandfather. And I thought that was the end of it. But then we went to the last surviving coffee plantation. It's no longer part of the Peruvian corporation. It's, it's now run as a, as a collaborative venture and um, old workers who'd been there part of it. And it still had this haunted atmosphere. And we spent a morning going around the coffee plantation. And then after we'd, we'd had a lunch, Van exchanged the photocopies of the contracts from the original Peruvian corporation with them. And they were very interested. And they looked at Arthur's photographs of the indigenous people. And they took us to see a room. And suddenly the real end of the thing revealed itself in this room. I'll just, I'll just read you that bit. In the latter stages of the armed struggle, disaffected Maoists followed the money into illicit cocoa con cultivation and processing. They associated uniform militias with protection offered to the large coffee estates. These gray columns set among skeletal ruins were the residue of a resisted shining path assault on Pampawele. But the guerrillas did not reach the heart of the operation, the cave of paper. Out of nowhere, at the end of our tour, we were treated to ultimate revelation. The surviving archive of the Pampawele plantation, correspondence with the Peruvian Corporation of London, all of it. Don Armando was slightly reluctant, ushering us into the chamber, stepping quickly aside from an aura of non-specific shame, like a man with a collection of stolen paintings in his garage, masterpieces that could neither be restored nor sold off. I saw Grant G. move swiftly and silently to catch the frame. Don Armando trapped, imprisoned, the post-historic inner room with the mounds of archive, facts, ledgers, maps, cash book, labelled files and ring binder, was divided from an outer office by an oxidised set of security bars. Age, a jailhouse, unable to shake off its stench, like the ones Arthur had inspected in Tasmania, like somewhere to hold Billy the Kid. But I'm sure that our Conradian filmmaker was, was referencing another more Amazonian image, Klaus Kinski and Fitzcarraldo in his fouled white suit, driven beyond endurance, shaking the bars of the Iquitos prison where he'd been lodged after raging at fate and at the rubber barons complacent dictatorship of unreason. The Lima records have been burnt or shredded, though official accounts do not contradict the versions of progress, exploration and road building promoted by Peruvian diplomats. Here, in essence, 
the whole world of the plantation, a mausoleum of fiscal fingerprints and triple entry bookkeeping, tangible evidence for any future prosecution, the tattered confession of pioneer planters. Here was a pitiful fence of numbers erected against evil fecundity of the forest. It was easier to keep everything and to ignore it, to hide it away, to make any cosmetic changes to a system of coercive slavery and exploitation. Woolen safes had burst, heavy metal rotted by tropical rains and the lustful heat of languid and drunken afternoons. Coffee sacks could not contain the papers with which they'd been stuffed. Bugs feasted on ink and cardboard. Rats gnawed new trails across fabulous hand-drawn treasure maps. Every coin paid out was recorded. Every complaint registered. This was the Peruvian version of a Stasi surveillance bulk bunker, unpillaged and unexamined. Such a wealth of facts, a cave of paper, heavier than the legendary gold of Juan Santos Atualpa, was open to interpretation from all parts of the cultural spectrum. Marxist-Leninists with a profound distrust of coffee politics could identify the misuse of the thermodynamic energy of labour. Leopold II of Belgium, the ultimate third word predator, could write home as he did from Seville. I'm very busy here, going through the Indies archives, calculating the profits which Spain made and which we must now make out of our colonies. I was dizzy. I was choked on sentient dust. In this barred cell was the explorer's explosion of all my projects, all the words, false starts, digressions, dictated runs and rushes, all the liberties I'd asset-stripped, all the books and maps and photographs stacked so menacingly around my desk. Here was a conceptual exhibition spearing my vanities. Saw my proposed book gutted and spilled and broken down into its constituent parts, while I indulged the unexpected gift of this archival metaphor, while I jumped about, gleaming the most potent images to carry away. Barn was reading. She was assessing and evaluating. She found one bunch of papers among so many to be photocopied and we returned to the company office. But there was no going back. My correspondence and moral conscience, the Spanish lawyer battling in Brussels with plagues and endlessly revised treaties, said that my photographs from the Pampa Whaley archive, though terrifying in their call for action, were nothing on the computer files with which he was assaulted day after day. And that is why he made it his business to emphasize by messenger, letter, fax, and telepathy that when there is no other place to go and no way of getting there, the writer must intensify to the ultimate degree the place he or she is fortunate enough to occupy. Start with a few yards of ground, just the length of your own shadow. My friend referred me to the split vision of the poet Ed Dorn in the closing book of his definitive quest narrative of the American West, Gunslinger, a journey to nowhere that arrives many times over. I had one eye out for the prosecution of individuality and the other eye out for advocates. Thank you. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ian, tremendous. And it kind of brings together so many threads from your body of work to date and, of course, brings us characters who are op operating inside the gold machine. And, and we should say, of course, that this is a book, as with all of Ian's, where it doesn't matter that you heard the end because the journey is everything. And this is a book, Ian, that moves across place and time, as you already intimated, in extraordinary ways with many, many different narrative and thematic weaves. Now, it's interesting that you talked about uh, Shining Path there, of course, again, in a strange synchronicity, Avimael Guzman, you see the founder and uh, ideologue of this disastrous revolutionary movement that cost tens of thousands of lives, died just a month ago, was cremated a couple of weeks ago, and of course is being given no burial site or marker site to avoid any kind of pilgrimage possibility for followers who are still there. The Shining Path had a, a huge impact on Peruvian uh, life recently in, in, the, in the past decades, not least because of the hostility of the Peruvian government response. What was your sense of, of that much more immediate history on the time and community there? Was it something that you could, you could track in a sense in your visit? Yeah, well, very much so. The thing, the thing with that was that it, it had become, though it was um, very much a Maoist political movement, it had become part of the same level of mythology as everything else because it was slightly distanced, even though obviously there were, there were elements still active. Our guide there, called Lucho, had had very various and dangerous dealings with Shining Path at the time of the height of their, their progress, back to the time when Farn went there first. He'd, he'd been stopped and, and challenged by them in, in his mountain trips in the Andes, but he'd had a really serious one when he was uh, captured by Shining Path when he was guiding them along the river where we were. And they took him into the jungle and he thought he was uh, going to be shot and chucked in the river. But he managed to kind of negotiate his way out of it by, by promising to pay $100 per person and using up all his money and giving it to them and saying, every time we pass through, we'll give you a hundred dollars, whatever. And he, he got away with it, but I mean, it was, it was there. And um, also it was being, they were being culpable in a sense that, uh, for things they'd never done. They, they were being blamed for blowing up bridges and things which they had not done. Because he visited a lot of people in prisons and discovered that, that this was a sort of govern, government myth. So there were myth and counter myth. And already they were moving back into, into the sort of the, the, the area of legend rather than uh, an actuality. Interestingly, uh, you know, we, since we're going, the jungle begins in London. The figure of Guzman appears in my book about London called Radon Daughters. I have them actually in London. That there is a kind, there is a guy I call him the Gas Man, who is 
who has been adapted by, uh, by a sort of extreme right-wing Thatcherite government and conjured up as a demonic presence in London. So he's actually, I had him in London in the early 90s as part of a series of outrages that were going on at that time, but more as a, as a way that paranoid conspiracies are manipulated by very disreputable political leaders here. Well, Ian, I mean, that kind of positioning in the early 90s, of course, uh, very close to the time of, of the publication Down River, and obviously the appearance of Arthur Sinclair in, in all sorts of guises across the decades of your writing does, you know, raise the inevitable question. I mean, this book was clearly having to ha going to have to happen in some form at some point, and it has obviously magnificent, magnificently appeared now. But could you talk a little bit about the overall nature of the project, your project? Now, Malcolm Lowry, of course, a, a, a writer that you have you know, hugely referenced and, and responded to across the years. His nominal project was The Voice That Never Ends, a title which would seem absolutely suitable to your own. But, you know, is there is there a, a, an overarching form that you might privately keep to yourself, a, a, a nomenclature that, that brings all this together? Those readers, of course, can, can track it themselves. But, but, it, but is there a way of thinking that means that all of this, all of it, speaks across across time to itself in various ways maybe retrospectively the, the, only, the only base motive with each book was to find a way into the next one you know I, I didn't think you know i didn't think i could function i didn't think i could stay alive unless there was another project kicking on every time somewhere folded into one book is the germ of the next until now essentially this this one has been seeded for a very long time i guess by accident because I was so well schooled in, in the, the kind of open field Olsonian poetics, something like the Maximus poems, where you, you start with a, with a patch of ground, you start with a, a series of acts of documentation and research, <coughs> you find out why that piece is functioning, why, how it was founded, where the people came from, and then you move off. You move, in, luckily enough, uh, for Gloucester, Massachusetts, you can move west you can move into the whole the whole space of america which he takes to be his primary task and also you can move under the depths of the atlantic ocean or the covered continents and eventually if this works you you drop onto a kind of arc of lyricism you you pull out into the cosmos you pull out into the deepest myths at the end it becomes more lyrical becomes more simple and essentially for me i think it was that kind of gale model based around a cer certain districts and areas of London that animated me. I took a lot of jobs just to basically get inside and see what happened in Truman's Brewery. How does it work? So the last of those sort of Victorian, Edwardian paternalist bill, uh, operations, which informed huge sections of territory. How did it work with the Parks Department along the river in Wapping and Limehouse? You driving around in Land Rovers, you're, you're inspecting church grounds, you're cutting grass, you know. All uh, a, a long period of those kind of jobs gave me a geography. And so that's the kind of first act is to, to establish your base. You establish the geographical base, take on a mythology, which was also a relation of how buildings connected with each other. How the city looked when you stood on top of Greenwich Hill, how it looked from Primrose Hill. Let it go back and let it go forward, let it move along these lines, desire lines, ley lines, whatever. Having done that, then there was permission to go into a kind of 
socio-political gothic fiction in which the politics of the moment are turned into grotesque clown-like puppets in acting across these landscapes what is the damage they're going to do in the future where are they coming from in the past how do we react against them so you have hard scrabbling book dealers running around the streets like rats you know parodying the capitalist ethos of the free market and then after that thanks to the london review of books opening out into a into a more reasoned discourse more moderate discourse of slightly crazy tasks like walking around the m25 seeing where london <laughs> begins and ends so i guess london was the heart of this this project i mean you call it a london project and then there was how do you get out of it at the end you know i've had a fictional figure called norton who's who's able to move through time but not place he's trapped within the gravity of london but he's able to move between the various periods and i've collaborated with dave mckean on graphic versions of this and grant g has picked up on this for his film the gold machine he's actually using the the norton character and and using it as a sort of form of research by this norton character who can't move who's exploiting his daughter to send back reports from the front line in peru and so essentially the only way out was was to undertake this journey this this is really is the kind of uh, final commission was to do this <laughs> and maybe having failed to to go through the rapids having failed to get out you know i'm fated to go i feel to go back to the beginning and to start to do i don't know if you can see <laughs> just come out from face press which covers very much the same ground as the as a gold machine but also other parts of latin america as uh, time i've spent in santiago and time i've spent in guadalajara and mexico it's a kind of a, a wafer thin intense prose poem version of all the stuff we've been talking about reduced to essence and reduced to a way where you're you're dealing with wonderful independent publishers who are often printing their own books and doing all the things that i was doing so we've come kind of come full circle and I think I'm back at the beginning. And if anyone has a good job going in a garden or a brewery, you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll be. Yeah, otherwise, I'm, I'll jump and get in, back into being a book dealer and start again. Thank you very much. Well, sadly, of course, the Truman Brewery has changed beyond all recognition since you were there, oh, um, and is now uh, you're very much part of the uh, part of the problem now. It seems very sadly, if um, one looks at the news around Brick Lane at the moment. But um, thank you very much indeed for that for that idea of of the ground being laid out and being being kind of marked, if you like, and then the mythologies being layered on top of that. Now, of course, in relation to this material, we're extremely aware, all of us, um, of course, of how sensitive engagement with such material is now and how how carefully one from our perspective and position has to tread in relation to that. Now, the book absolutely navigates that sensitivity extremely well, because, of course, as you said yourself already, this is both a family history. It's a it's a personal mapping of, of cultural and mythological traces. And also, of course, a huge, hugely resonant and incredibly accomplished investigation. I'm very glad that you mentioned Patrick Wright's reference to you very, very early on back in 1987 as a kind of poet laureate of the welfare state and, and the LRB has carried particularly your investigative uh, and political journalism in a way that you know is not often acknowledged when people are reviewing your work. Now this is a very deeply researched as the New Yorker acknowledged yesterday in, in, uh, in referencing the book, a deeply researched and extremely committed inquiry, very much in the spirit of Roger Casement's work, Conrad and others. Now bringing that kind of 
post-colonial, decolonial, family colonial investigation into the heart of the writing was of course, you know, it's of course for anybody a challenge, but how do you think about that, that process now, being able to look back at the uh, investigation between covers? It was obviously both, uh, you know, again, a culmination of your London investigation, but also one, you know, coming with considerably more risk in all sorts of ways. Yeah, absolutely. But although my great grandfather would be seen as being a, a colonist, he was, you know, you, you'd have to go back and discover why and how that came about. I, I, mean, I don't think we do that often enough. So many of those Scots had been displaced. They'd lost their land. The, the great landlords had swept them aside. The sheep had taken their ground, you know, in the same way that he, I think he delivers, it's unpublished anywhere else, the, the material from Tasmania where he goes to. And he's horrified, you know, he's horrified by what's happened there. The, the nature of the prisons, the nature of the asylums, the nature of remote landlords who own this, all of this land, and the, the horrendous episodes that happened with the slaughter of Aboriginal people and, and uh, turning loose of thousands of sheep onto their land. He, he actually carries out his own kind of a devastating critique of all that. So when, when you come to judge him for the fact that he, dis, he, he has this kind of a Calvinistic view that the people who are, who are living in this incredibly fertile land on the banks of the Perenne had not made use of it, which, which is going obviously horribly mistaken. He thinks it's only going to be a good thing if you start to grow coffee which he can see as being profitable for all concerned. And if the, the people who are migratory by, by nature decide that they'd rather migrate on into the jungle, that's okay with him. Well, all, obviously we've got to carry the, the burden of all that, but I think it needs to be known why so many of these Scottish and Irish were scattered uh, to the four winds and began to reprise the, the same pattern themselves when they got to other countries. It's never as simple as it could be. And what everything I've done in London equally could be just as easily accused of cultural appropriation because I'm, you know, I'm dipping into Cockney cultures that I don't, I don't belong to by birth or, or only by occupation. And I'm kind of teasing out secrets and telling stories. Do they belong to me? You know, I, I think it, I, I just feel I've, I'm on the same process as he was. And, you know, in future times, I'm sure I'll be held up to be just as guilty. One of, the, one of the other aspects was that it was very important that, that Barn took her research, which she'd done, and nobody had done this before, all of the documentation from the Peruvian Corporation of the contracts, so that when we met one group who were now Seventh-day Adventists, they had no idea that the Peruvian government had, had gone into a treaty with the Seventh-day Adventists to let them come into these lands on the understanding that they would tame the natives and make them obedient, make them give up drinking masato, make them give up ayahuasca, make them turn up for work. They would get hospitals and schools and so on. But they had no idea that this, this was part of the deal when the missionaries first arrived. So we gave them these contracts. We gave them the photographs. We gave them all of that stuff. And there were, there were very big meetings and feasts and discussions. And you know, it, it meant a lot, and uh, the, all the documents were taken away and filed or copied, and they've now become part of the history in, in a sense that's, I think, quite significant. It felt a bit risky, you know, announcing ourselves as the 
the descendants of somebody who'd been involved with what happened. But making the journey was, you know, it's no restitution or exorcism or anything, but it was a stage, it was a step, it was a, it was a dialogue. And um, it, it was very important to us, if not to them. Absolutely. No, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And thank you for that, you know, productive complication, of course, of the earlier part of your response about the, you know, the colonial implications, if you like, of internal dispossession here, but also that fundamentally important part of the, uh, of the exchange, the, the dialogue and the acknowledgement of that, of that shared history. So thank you very much indeed. And now, as we move towards a close, I'd just like to focus perhaps on two more aspects of this idea of of the relationship with the past and also with place. I mean, the first one is really something you've spoken of elsewhere about the, the writing style. We are very familiar with your extremely distinctive and vivid and, and lyrically driven, but investigative writing style. Now you have said elsewhere that you feel that this also was kind of bound up in Arthur Sinclair's own writing style in, in his published journal. Do you still feel that's the case, that in a way it was all kind of there and you have drawn from it ancestrally in, in a literary sense as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I think when I first seriously sat down and read his book, I was quite shocked and surprised to find echoes of tone that were very similar to the way I wrote and the way that he used something like talking about being economical with the truth when he was talking about Peruvian politicians, which phrases that seemed to jump across time. And the fact that I think he probably bent what he saw to some degree to, to kind of shape a story and to 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 find some grotesque or or comic element in a lot i i mean i recognized all of that but i think there are there are two warring strands in, in what i do uh, a lot of it would be similar to what he does and to the sort of scottish strand of stevenson and then there, on the other hand there's a there's a welsh side from my mother's family who are welsh speaking and great storytelling mythologists and a more lyrical kind of Preacherly tone that, you know, I saw these mad relations who got up in chapels and preached for three or four hours in Welsh. I think there's the, the two sides, you know, wore out in, in what I do, as well as a good leavening of stuff from early reading in America. So in a way, the last question really is for now, and, and many thanks indeed for sharing um, such rich and, and rewarding insights with us over the last hour, is really about, about again, about bringing, bringing us back here, back to current benighted state of the island that we call home, really not in a good way, as I think we could all agree for all sorts of reasons and all sorts of fronts. But it occurs to me, of course, that, as you said, with your Scots uh, background, with your, your growing up in Wales, with your location and investigation of England, and also your profoundly important uh, university years in Ireland, you have got, you know, in a way, this, this quartet of territories very much inside everything you do and, and, and how you think about where you are and what writing and, and literary encounter with place can do. I mean, there's a sense of, of belonging, forms of identity, of course, that um, run throughout your work and, and particularly around this idea of the place of these islands. Now, could we look at this project in its entirety today to, and think of it really as, as as, as an investigation of, of the whole of these islands in all sorts of ways that are linked in myriad connections as you and Ginsburg saw when looking at London across the decades, now across you know dozens and dozens of publications, large and small. We have a, a permanently active and vigorous conversation with what it means to be in Britain, in Albion. You live on Albion Drive in Hackney. 
Albion Village Press was your first publication outlet, your own uh, poetry press. The idea of Albion is fundamental to how we think about your dialogue with Blake and many, many others. Is Albion and, and what it could be, what it sadly is, what it might be in the future, the core of the project? I think Albion itself has become seriously tainted. It's very difficult, very difficult to go with that. But then there's Alba, which was Scotland as well. But I mean, there, that Blakean strain that it might represent at its best has been very important. Uh, one very important element we haven't touched on in, in the book, from my point of view, is the character of the, the uh, advocate, who is, who is actually based in Brussels, but is Spanish and is a, a kind of Euro lawyer. He's having to deal with all that Euro bureaucracy, which is pulling him apart. But on the other side of it, he's so deeply embedded in, the, in the, his love of particularly Buenos Aires, but Latin America in general, and keeps feeding this information to, to me. I mean, the whole thing for him is an enormous moral, ethical project. It's very important in a way that nobody here would think of it. And at the same time, he's got to take a train to Strasbourg and talk about Euro money and, and be put up, listen to horrendous speeches. He's, he's in shock. I remember seeing him after he'd heard Lord Frost deliver a a, a terrible speech in Brussels, which was allowing no room at all for any kind of dialogue. It was just a series of punitive demands that, that rudely and blatantly delivered. So this figure, this European figure, is very important to me as something that we're losing. And the way that he, he would not only be fluent in, in the literatures of Argentina, Peru, Chile, Spain, Germany, Russia, he spends years translating obscure English poems. He's embedded mm -hmm. in the matter of Hoffman. Um, and this figure is, is, is really, really important in the book. Counterbalancing Lucho, who is the, the adventure tourist guide, who's, who's a very strong, sturdy Highlander, but only sees things in extremely practical terms. He wants to get people out there climbing waterfalls, you know, jumping off cliffs, uh, hanging out in the jungle, doing, doing, doing all the time. There's no time, there's no time to stop everything. And he has this little farm, but yet he's prepared to let foresters rip this whole wonderful hillside apart so that there's a road up to his farm. You know, that those kind of things give a series of quite complex and unreal, unusual and much undiscussed conflicts morally and ethically in terms of ecology, politics, everything else. It's not a simple story in any way. The ultimate is that the, the, the guano, which is being exported as the major wealth of the area at the time my great grandfather is there, being shipped back to Europe on whalers and is used as fertilizer in Ireland and Scotland as one of the contributory causes of the potato famine, which wipes out Arthur's Highland potatoes and is one of the causes of him having to go into the world. So everything, everything is cyclic. We've got to kind of come to this cyclic, plural, interwoven strands of time. And the other sense of the jungle, which in part you could get from a novel like Brian Kathleen's The Vor, of the, the sheer nature of animism, that everything is alive. It's, it's the sort of thing you get in Merlin Sheldrake now, that these filaments spreading out everywhere, racing through, interconnecting everything. And you get that sense when you make this journey. 
all of the stories, all of the legends, all of the past is sweeping and flowing into you and flowing out. And the job is just to tidy it into some sort of structure. Well, and we're very grateful you do, Ian. Thank you so much. I mean, it's a dazzling, kaleidoscopic vision of, of both of, of reality and its possibilities. Of course, it's it's successes, its losses, its past, its present, its future, and the idea of the unity that is behind and transcending all of that, um, realised, of course, in extraordinary prose. So thank you very much indeed, as ever, for sharing your thoughts with us. And of course, uh, the writing itself across many, many publications. We're talking tonight, most particularly about The Gold Machine, but also about the Face Press pamphlet, um, which you can buy only from the LRB bookshop, um, not even from Face Press itself at this point. Fever Hammer Red, Fever Hammer Yellow, Fever Hammer Blue, please do find that now from the, from the LRB. Many, many thanks indeed, Ian, as ever, and goodbye. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.